Welcome back to the program. Keep those text messages coming in. Now, Max Callis, uh, we always like to do things a little bit differently here in the afternoon's program. Uh, and have you ever wondered what happens to athletes when their playing days come to an end? And we're not talking just professional athletes either. We're talking at the uh, social level. Well, Max Callis is an independent Melbourne-based business and career coach, and he's recently completed a large piece of research around athlete career transitions. And I'm happy to say that Max is on the line. G'day, Max. Hey there, Jimmy. How are you today? Yeah, really well, really well. How, how are you, mate? And more to the point, what have you found? What's the, what's, well, first of all, why? Why are we doing this research, Matt? <laughs> yeah, thanks, Jimmy. Good question. So to kick off why um, the seed was sown actually when I was just 13 and I was captain of the rugby team. Um, first apologies is it was rugby union. Second apologies is it was English rugby union. Um so I was convinced at 13, as I'm sure many of us are, um, childhood dream, I was going to play rugby forever and ever. That was my life set out there and then. Um, actually, the dream was over by 14 for me because I had knee troubles and everyone else grew about 10 stone heavier that summer. Um, so I think that's where the seed was sown. And uh, I definitely got that empathy for anyone who identifies strongly as an athlete and um, then finds that they suddenly need to reinvent themselves and that's not the primary identity. And fast forward later, uh, after a decade of doing design strategy work, which is basically helping businesses and projects get from A to B, um, I just felt a bit flat and uninspired and unfulfilled in, in continuing with that and basically reinvented myself as a career coach, um, doing all the training and qualifications there and I wanted to find my niche and looking around at the options. Uh, one of the options was to make athletes my niche. And I found that reaching out to people, the athletes were coming back about five times more than anyone else saying, oh, my God, yes, please. Mm. Hey, it's really interesting, isn't it? Because a lot of the athletes at the end of the day, they their identity is wrapped up in in what they do rather than who they are. And did that come through in your research, Max? Yeah, absolutely. The identity is arguably the primary insight that's come out of this. So with executive coaching in the in the kind of white collar space, it's quite common we would work together and examine, you know, what is your superpower? Um, what is the go-to thing that you stand out for and excel at above others? How do you stand out? Um, it's actually the reverse with athletes, where basically you're a superhero by day. And actually, it's really useful to develop your Clark Kent. You know, what is your non-sporting identity and it's about encouraging a bit more balance so if you take sport out of the equation hopefully the individual does not collapse or implode as a result yeah i, I think that transition period is very difficult for for all athletes no matter the the level that they get at um, what are the things that you're learning from your research what what did give us any examples of of how things um, unfortunately, can get away from people and how that mm. can manifest itself. And then alternately, how people find a, a new direction with with something that is, that is new in their professional careers. Yeah, no problem. So in terms of the key insights that came out, came out of the research, I should outline the, the primary aim of the research was to check the alignment between the expectations of current athletes and the uh, experiences of past athletes and the observations of non-athletes in sport, just to see how these different groups look at the career transition piece. And by transition, I should perhaps clarify, um, there's a range of transitions within or out of sport. 
what we're primarily looking at here is the retirement piece, stopping your playing mm. days. Um, the first thing to come out of it is that there are strong similarities with the classroom experience. I imagine most of us are familiar with about a third of the group are clear on what they're going to do next and they're making progress towards it. About a third of the group don't know what they're going to do next, but they're probably experimenting um, to some degree with trying to find a fit. And about a third are inactive. Um, so the rule of a third seems to apply to groups in the sporting world as much as uh, the school classroom. And yeah, the other thing to come out probably is in terms of expectations, there was a massive mismatch. Um, there's this idea of whether athletes will, their careers will end on their own terms or not. Yeah. Athletes are largely very blind to the idea that the this pathway will end from factors outside of their control, particularly we're, we're looking at injury and deselection there. Yeah. Um, so those people around the athletes, the non-athletes in sport, um, are very clear that you're very likely to have your sporting career ended by things outside of your control. But the athletes come across very naive in this respect. And in terms of my design strategy work, there's a lovely formula that says satisfaction equals expectations minus reality. And here we've got a case of the expectations exceeding reality, and that is leading to a lot of pain. Um, yeah. So being blind about that is is certainly a difficulty. And then the third main insight to come out of this is, is a slightly controversial one, but there's I, I had an initial summary where I slightly called it out as, you know, sport is an addiction, and all of us working in and around sport are basically drug dealers, which I think is a too contentious way really of putting it, probably uh, overstepped the mark there. But I think there are strong parallels between sport and addiction from which we can definitely learn some really valuable insights. Um, so looking at what people said, there was often a comments like, you know, how can I replace highs like this? And um, it also plays back into that rule of a thirds where I, perhaps I saw the addiction angle because I've been to rehab myself 16 years ago to give up drinking. So addiction and recovery is part of my journey um, but I've noticed that those people who are inactive in terms of looking at alternative ways of living in the recovery space it's because of two things it's fear or pride and fear is just I don't dare think about my future it frightens me it brings up uncomfortable emotions and the pride one is a kind of yeah I'm different I'm special um, and particularly this fallacy that you know if I get to a certain level I don't need to worry about anything else um, yeah. So the expectations, the identity, the elements of, I think, you know, obsession, I think we can relate to the idea that those of us into sport, we're obsessive about it. Um, addiction is when obsessions are a bit out of balance. Um, so it's a fine, fine line there. And we can we can choose to dive into the sort of uh, controversy of whether sport is an addiction or not. Probably. I think that was the unhelpful thing that I've done, actually. Um, but I think there are parallels there, and it'd be a pity to lose the insights and the benefits of looking at career transitions, not just as getting a job, but thinking about that identity piece of how we, you know, I had an addictive personality that I had to push to the background. And you never get rid of it. It's always lurking. But in the same way, the sporting identity that dominates for a lot of athletes um, we need to learn to push that to the background. And yes, it's always going to be a part of you, but we want to bring forth, you know, the human being in there. 
So any activities that can help to bring forth your alternative um, alternative sides of your personality that are not that sporting identity is a really useful step to take. Mm. Uh, so we had Amy Sayer on yesterday. Uh, she's an attacking midfielder for the Matildas. She also has just finished her human biology degree at Stanford. Uh, she also did philosophy and she's looking to do uh, law school and a master's in bioethics, um, which blew everyone away. And so we describe <laughs> yeah. her as a, she'll be an outlier, right? So we don't, we don't count on her. How do, how do you activate those inactives that you talked about, Max? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so there are different needs from those different three groups and the inactive ones are the hardest. But it, again, the parallels with addiction are that for those people with um, an addiction, no one else can can get get the recovery done for you, basically. So unless someone wants to show up for themselves, it's very difficult. Um, I think in terms of, we take the two aspects I've highlighted. My approach is that it tends to be because of fear or pride. Fear is easier to work with because that's someone who listens to the question of what am I going to do next? but they just can't answer it. Um, the ones who are feeling prideful about it, they don't even hear the question. They think they're above the question. And that's mm. a bit harder. Um, for those with fear, we can start to relate um, to that. But I, I find that within the sporting environment, it's pretty hard, particularly for team members, to acknowledge any aspect of weakness. So that's why I love to operate as an independent career coach. Um, we Just as... You know, perhaps you've probably been more open and candid with someone you randomly met at an airport one day than many of your friends or family. Um, it's that kind of relationship where you can actually get a bit of time and space to be a, a more true version of yourself and just listen to what you really want. Uh, so I think providing some independent space to explore that is really important. And that's and also just relating that we're all fearful. Um, and trying to point out that we're, we're all better at some things than others and normalizing fears and acknowledging it. And often, you know, the fear is the way. And rather than ignoring it, there's a, usually a really useful guideline or clue or message in what we're fearful about. Mm. Um, and the other aspect is learning to see fear as excitement, you know, anticipation before a game. Kind of a fine line, isn't it, between fear and excitement? Yeah. Yes, exactly. Hey, Max, uh, really interesting. Uh, people can reach out to you on LinkedIn if they're interested in, in further understanding of this. So Max Callis, M-A-X-K-A-L-I-S. Uh, you can find Max across uh, LinkedIn if you are interested in learning further about that. Hey, Max, great to spend some time with you today and, and really appreciate your input. Yeah, great to chat, Jimmy. Anytime, love to chat. Thanks again.